When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I talked about Dance with the Stars as being a conversational piece, it's an icebreaker. You were the longest holdout by a rookie in franchise history. That's fake news, Dr. Field, by the way. Yeah, that's fake news? Yeah, I'm going to tell you why. Because if you don't have a contract, I'm not holding out. I'm just negotiating. <laughs> Here's where I think owners make mistakes at. They mess with the chemistry of a football team. What kind of owner would you be? That's a very good question. Well, you were just listening to my good friend Emmett Smith. Now, you know Emmett Smith. He's the NFL's all-time leading rusher, three-time Super Bowl champ for the Dallas Cowboys, Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's also winner of Dancing with the Stars. Who would have ever thought that? But I want to tell you why I wanted to talk to Emmett uh, for fill in the blanks. This man was a champion on the field. He was a champion off the field while he was playing. And he is such a champion since he hung up his helmet and got into the game of life full time. He's a respected entrepreneur, president and CEO of Emmett Smith Enterprises, Pat and Emmett Smith Charities, EJ Smith Construction. I mean, he's as busy now as he ever was when he was playing for the Cowboys. He's a good friend of mine. He plays a better game of golf than I do. I asked him some questions about What was his secret? How did he become such a champion? And sometimes you ask people that, and they don't really know what to say. Emmett had some very interesting answers. He did not become Emmett Smith by accident. He became Emmett Smith on purpose. He is who he is on purpose. And you're going to learn some things. They're going to change the way you live your life. It's going to change the way you lead your children. So let's stop talking about him, and let's start talking to him, which we'll do in about, well, less than one minute. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people multi-layered and complex it takes some digging to find the truth but when we find it it can change our world we like to dig the news on merritt street essential television Emmett, thanks for sitting down and talking to me thank you doc you just came in from guadalajara right yeah yeah i was down in guadalajara mexico 
went went out and visited a place called an area called Amatitan, yeah, uh, over to Casa Hadadura, and uh, went down to pick out uh, my own barrels. And so I picked out two two barrels yesterday and yeah. uh, made a nice tequila. Yeah, cool. That's great. Well, I'm interested to talk about that because my goal in doing this is. I would love for people to know you the way I know you. Okay. Because people know you as the superstar that you are and the things that you've achieved. But one of the things I like to do when I get the chance to talk to a friend like you that is such a champion and is such a superstar is give them some insight into you because it's so inspirational. There are so many young people that will listen to this, every kid from every walk of life. And you didn't get lucky. This didn't fall in your lap. I know a lot of things that we're going to talk about, and I intend for this conversation to change young people's lives. Well, Because you are inspirational in so many different ways as a family man, as an athlete in business, and I want them to understand what makes you a champion. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on your show. Um, there's a lot that goes into everything that you just mentioned. Uh, you're absolutely correct. I did not grow up on third base. Uh, <laughs> Boy, isn't that right? And uh, I wasn't necessarily in the, the most loving family environment. Uh, so I had to work my way through some of those things as well. My father and mom were living together and have lived together for a long time. Yeah. Lost my mom about two years ago. Yes, I know, and I'm sorry about your loss. Yeah, so, anyway. but thank you. And so uh, having to uh, grow up with four others, with three others, brothers and another sister as well, and a half-sister, uh, it's part of the upbringing. And you grow up in humble beginnings, whether it's in the housing projects of Adage Courts in Pensacola, Florida, then you, you actually move out and, and you live in the backyard of your grandfather's house or villa house in the backyard. But... Those are just things that I grew up with and grew up learning to love my brothers and take care of my brothers and sisters, take care of family, and love on family. Um, but um, uh, the foundation of, of sports is the one thing that I lean on the most. I think it's the thing that has helped shape and guide me and, and give me the discipline and the focus uh, that I need uh, and that I needed to become who I am. It was my way out of the neighborhood. But uh, I still had two loving parents disregarding their issues as parenting. But, uh, uh, you know, you learn a lot. You learn a lot. But what was it like for you growing up? Because I grew up with a violent mm -hmm. alcoholic father, and I never knew when I came home if the utilities were going to be on or if the windows were going to be kicked out of mm -hmm. the house or he was going to be drunk, asleep in the driveway. In the middle of the winter, I grew up in chaos. I know it wasn't smooth for you right. at, at home either, and it was athletics that got me out of that as well. Tell people, what was it like for you growing up in grade school and junior high and all? Well, grade school and junior high was all, all it was, first of all, the dynamics, once I moved, once we built a house in the backyard of my grandfather's house, uh, where my brothers Eric Emery, my sister Marcia, and I, and then my youngest brother Emil, my mother and father, and all of us lived there. Uh, but prior to that, um, I had 
the, I was the oldest boy, so I had the responsibility of taking care of my grandmother uh, while my father did his work and my grandfather did his shipyard work at Armstrong. So um, at probably at, at eight, nine years old, I would be up in the middle of the night turning my grandmother on her side because she was a paraplegic and she needed someone there with her uh, right. before home health care became home health care, which you know it now. Yeah. And so I, I kind of grew up a little bit earlier being more responsible, having to learn responsibility, carry on some of the uh, adult chores. And at the time, as a young kid, I mean, I, I quite didn't, didn't, didn't quite understand it. Why I got to do it. You know, kids being very selfish. Why I got to do this? Why, why, why? Yeah. And so, but years later, I come to gain more appreciation for the experience of doing it. And I understood why. I understand why more now than I ever did when I was a youngster. Right. Because of the lessons that, that you couldn't see when you were in the moment, when you step back now, you learn the lessons of having the, the ability to take care of someone else. The, the, the sensitivity or the empathy to be there and help service someone else. Um, and that's something that, that has always stuck with me. And that's something that, that, that still stick with me to this day because um, I do believe to whom much is given, much is required right now. And so having that sense of responsibility and that focus uh, and, and that thought process of taking care of someone, whether it's me now being a father of, of five kids and a beautiful wife, having this sense of responsibility of taking care of my family, providing for my family, being a, being a father figure to my boys and my girls and, and trying to be the best husband that I possibly can and not always getting everything right, but trying to do that piece. Uh, that is part of who I am right now. And I think a lot of that came from a bringing as well. Did that take away your childhood? Because those are ages where kids are out playing and doing different things. And at that time, you had chores and duties and responsibilities that other kids didn't have. Well, I don't think it took away my childhood at all, to be honest with you, because I still had the ability to do all those other things throughout the daytime. Yeah. This was at night. This was something at night now during yeah. school week uh, where— my father and my grandfather would have to work graveyard shift 11 to 7 in the morning. And so in between 11 and 7 in the morning, I would be there sleeping. If she needed something in the middle of the night, I'd get up in the middle of the night, get her a drink of water, turn on the side, get her back position yeah. comfortably, and then I'd go back to bed. Yeah. He'd come in about 7 o'clock. I'd get up, get my school clothes on, boom, take off, yeah. take off, go to school. So You just had to sleep fast. Yeah, I just had to sleep fast. <laughs> yeah. you, learn how to, you learn how to manage through sleep. And yeah. so... Uh, it, it, I don't think it took away my, my, my childhood at all, to be honest That's with you. That's good. I really don't. And uh, when I sit back and reflect, because I still did the same things. I rode my bike all around. Uh, with, I played my friends. I played baseball in the street, played football in the street, went to the park, just played basketball, played sand lot football. I did all those things. So I don't think it actually took away my my uh, childhood at all. I think it gave me much more of a sense of responsibility. I know when you got to high school, you clearly had discovered you had a gift and had honed that gift and worked your skill set in football. But when did it occur to you that you were different? Because at some point you had to say, uh, I got a lot of people in my rearview mirror. I'm standing here in the end zone a lot more than anybody else. Did this happen in middle school? When was the first time you realized, I got a future here? Oh, man. You know, it's funny because I, I tell people when I speak all the time, I talk about my uh, Pop Warner coach, Charlie Egger, quite a bit. Right. Um, I was 10 years old and having to go play with the 11 and 12 year old guys because uh, I was too heavy to play with the nine and 10 year old guys. So I was forced yeah. to go play up. 
and uh, and playing up meant that I was playing with eleven and twelve year old guys. And I was the youngest on the on the squad. I didn't start in the backfield. I was more of a utility guy. I ran the specialty plays, the reverses, and all those kind of things. And I started on defense. And so what I found was even at the age of ten. I still was able to compete with the bigger boys. Yeah. And I still was able to tackle guys and, and be as aggressive as I could ever wanted to be. And in some cases, I was probably more aggressive than some 11 and 12-year-old kids. And so I learned a lot about who I was and what I could do. I gained more confidence playing the game of football at that time. And then when I went to high school, that's when it all really came to a head because yeah. because at the end of the day, I'm, I was playing against guys that I played against in Pop Warner football. And they were all at different schools. Yeah. And either we were on teams together at times or we competed against each other at times. Yeah. And so now we're all at different high schools. We're playing against each other. I'm like, I know this guy. This guy knows me. So I know what kind of football player he is. I just love the game. And so yeah. I think high school really set, set the foundation of being able to say, okay, I do have something special. Did that become part of your identity in terms of your social life and your identity in school, did that become part of your currency of who you were because you were so well accomplished as an athlete? I think I think it did. I think it became it became very special not only to me, to myself, but I, it became special to other people. And and you start to realize like, wow, people are coming from all over the place to see us play or watch me play. I got folks flying in from Georgia, Florida, and all over the place to come watch us play. Our crowds began, began to get larger. And, and, and then having the ability to uh, have a relationship with one of my coaches like Jimmy Nichols and, and him sharing some of the stories that other coaches wanted to see me play in the game when he sat me down on the bench because it was beating them pretty bad and they just wanted to watch me run, stuff like that. Then you start to realize that uh, you do have – a talent that God has blessed you with. And, and then you start to also understand that that talent came through a gene pool. It came from my father. My father was a pretty good football player too during his day. And yeah. so, uh, so, I mean, we never really talked about his football life, not a whole lot anyway, but he had some talent and some skill too as well. But you worked hard too. It yes. wasn't just God given. You trained hard, you worked hard, yes. right? Yes, yes. Uh, Dwight Thomas made sure that we worked very hard yeah. uh, in high school. And uh, he was a very strict, disciplinary kind of a coach, uh, kind of like a Jimmy Johnson. And, yeah. um, and I think my high school experiences uh, with all the coaches that we had, I think I was surrounded by great coaches. Yeah. I learned so much about football at a young age to where now, and I'm looking at high school football right now, it's like, what are these guys are thinking? Uh, I don't see the same kind of quality coaching that I was able to receive and some yeah. of my teammates was able to receive. But what did you say to yourself at the time? Because here you are, you're a young man, you're in your teens. People are getting out of their houses, into their cars, driving to airports, getting on airplanes, and flying from other states to come sit in stands to watch you play football. They're not coming to watch the team. All humility aside, they're coming to watch you. They're coming to watch somebody perform and somebody perform well. Yeah. And so to me, I, t I started taking the uh, taking on this, this, this mantra like the larger the crowd, the more I wanted to perform. I wanted to give them what they came to see. Yeah. And so I wanted my talent to stand out on that football field like no other. 
I wanted people to walk away and say, man, I just think I just saw something very, very special. And, and that was important uh, because the more I looked at it this way, the more I performed at my best, the more everyone else would probably perform at their best and the more chance, more opportunities we would have to not only yeah. win games, but um, perhaps even win championships too. You know, when I was growing up and started playing, our family was really, really poor. And we were like what poor wanted to be when poor grew up. <laughs> So everybody has a role in the family. One of my roles was I was the family's entertainment because at the time, the school provided everything, football shoes, mm -hmm. socks, equipment, and you went to games. And when I played in the early years, Thursday afternoons were the games, then when you got into junior varsity, then varsity, and the games were free, my whole family looked forward. That was their one time during the week where they got to go do something because right. we didn't have money. You didn't go to movies. Right. You didn't go roller skating. I was the one boy with three sisters. So I realized that became a currency for me that I could do something for my family. They right. could come watch me play. And in high school, we went undefeated for three years. And so it was a big deal for them to come watch us play. Yes. So I was able to give something back to my family when they didn't have anything else. Did right. your family take a lot of pride? My family took a lot of pride in everything that we did. Um, um, you're right. It is that currency. It's that, oh, our kid or our sons, because my brother Eric was on, our, on my high school football team as well. And he yeah. was very talented. My brother Emery as well. All of my brothers played football. So, and uh, they all went off and played in college too. So it was a family night on Friday Night Lights. That's what I'm talking about. It was a family night. It was a cousin night. It was a relative night. It was a reunion night. Where it was people, a religion. It was a religion. <laughs> and, and they showed up every Friday night. My daddy used to hold the chain. He was on the part of the chain game, volunteering, yeah. and all those kind of things. And so it became a ritual for the Smith household. Yeah. Uh, even my sister Marcia was already graduated from high school at the time. She's six years old and I, she was in the stands as well. So yeah. it was a family affair. And, and that continued on, yeah. even into college. And so for not only myself, but for my brother Eric and Emery, uh, where those things continued on. I got to ask this for all of the young athletes out there. I'm going to ask it in different phases. But in those years when you were getting ready to play, what was your mental, emotional regimen when you were getting ready for a game? What went through Emmett's head when you were getting ready for game time? Your game face, oh. your game mindset. What right. did you say to yourself? Well, a number of things. Number one, um, I tried to visualize the entire game. Really? Before the game even was played. The entire game? I tried to visualize the play calls, when I got the ball, what was going on on the defensive side of the ball, where the guys was coming from. I tried to create this picture, this movie in my mind in terms of what I was going to do and what I was going to see um, and and how I was going to respond. If, and so I tried to play the we, we We say as athletes, we say play the game in your mind first. And that's what I tried to do, try to play the game in my mind. And then I tried to, uh, before the game, I just tried to relax into the moment and try not to allow the moment to get too big uh, because big games will bring a ton of anxiety 
a ton of excitement, a ton of energy. And sometimes you burn so much energy before the game, you can't even play the game to your best ability because you're emotionally spent. But you have to learn those things by going through big games. Uh, that's why life experiences are such a powerful thing. If you never had the experience of playing in any big game, and then when you play in one, you would never know what it was like. You, you're, you're, you might underplay it and not be at your best, or you might overplay it and not still be at your best. Mm -hmm. And so, but having the experience of being in games that are very, very meaningful to you as an individual player and to you as a team, is absolutely paramount to your life experiences. I think it all pays, it pays itself forward and backwards. It gives yeah. you the opportunity to appreciate certain things. I remember the coaches used to tell us in high school, you know, men, football teaches you about life. Yes. And I'd roll my eyes like, you know, football teaches you about football. Give it a <laughs> rest, guys. <laughs> I have to tell you, when I got through playing football and got into life, and something was tough, I really thought back to those times where you're in the fourth quarter and you're down eight points, not seven. Right. They've got the ball on your 10, and somehow or another, you wound up winning the game. They fumble, you go, you get the ball, you go for two, you get it, you tie it up, and you just think, don't ever quit. It ain't over. It ain't, it over. ain't over. I mean, I did look back and say, it really did teach you about life. I don't know how anybody that's not in athletics learns grit and don't quit. Yeah. I just don't know how they do it. You, you, it's almost impossible in some cases unless you mentally, you, you have to go through something. something. Something has to prepare you for that kind of grit. And not only does it have to prepare you for that kind of grit, but like I just talked about, I just talked about it, anxiety and stressors. Yeah. Uh, all of those things. How do you rise up and make the play when your number is called? How do you put all of those stressors down below and stay in the moment and not allow the moment to get too big. Yeah, You have to go through those type of things in order to handle that kind of balance and be able to deal with it. And yeah. so, and I think football uh, has put us in a lot of different precarious situations that force us to do things uh, that would, that we would not necessarily do in a normal situation. Yeah. And it teaches you about leadership as well. Teaches about leadership, teamwork, um, and and um, yeah, especially when they come down to leadership. I mean, everybody on the football field may call themselves an alpha dog, but everybody on the football field is not an alpha dog. That's right. <laughs> it's not. And so at the end of the day, you're going to have one guy that emerges as your team leader yeah. or your offensive leader or your defensive leader, and you're going to have sub-leaders around that. Mm -hmm. And so in the case of the Dallas Cowboys, Troy Aitman was our offensive leader. Sub-leaders around it could have been Mike Irvin, myself, and some other guys. The beautiful thing about a championship-quality team, you don't have to look far to find leaders. Yeah, You have a lot of them. Yeah, you got a lot of them, and they work together. And they all work together. I look now about those comments about football teachers about life. I was the captain on every team I ever played on, and I took that as a big responsibility. And everything I've been in my life, I've been in business for myself, I've been the boss, I've been the leader. It just seemed natural to me. Right. And I've got two boys who you know, Jay and Jordan. They've both been captains of every team they've been on. And I've always said to them, big time players make big time plays at big times. Yes. I brought them up that way and I've watched them, whether it's basketball or football, when it came down to that moment, 
the coaches always called on them. Big-time players make big-time plays at big times. That was their philosophy, and they knew it. And that is the philosophy that I adopted as well. Yeah. So you have players that want the ball in their hands when the yeah. going gets tough. Yeah. Then you also have players that don't want the ball at all yeah. when the going <laughs> yeah. gets tough. No, no, don't come my way with it. Let's go over here with it. And yeah. then you also have the player that everybody turns to when that time comes, when the going gets tough. And they're looking to you to, to, to revive them or to inspire them, to take them to the next level, or to say something to, to just break the monotony of the game to where everybody else can calm down. That's something that I guess you carry that into the rest of your life as a father, as a husband. There's just no quit. There's no quit. I, my, I don't my, believe in quit. I got a good friend, Ron White, you know, blue-collar comedian. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He always jokes. His daddy said, that boy's got a lot of quit in him. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you just don't have any quit in you. Well, We've seen that. We well, saw that when you rushed for 223 yards with half the game with your shoulder right. completely blown out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you ain't got no quit in you when you do that. Well, you have you have a level of mental toughness, yeah. and that means that you you know what you're going through, and you're willing to go through the fire to get it. Yeah. And so, which if that translates to not quitting, then great. Yeah. I don't have that kind of quit in me. You've shown that. That's for sure. Now, talk to me about this. So, when. In fact, I've got his name here. I want to give him credit for this. Max Emfinger said of Smith, quote, Emmett Smith is a lugger, not a runner. He's not fast. He can't get around the corner. When he falls flat on his face, remember where you heard it first. <laughs> Max Emfinger, E-M-F-I-N-G-E-R. <laughs> He's a recruiting expert. <laughs> <laughs> See, this, this, that right there goes to show uh, people can say whatever they want to say about what, who you are, what, you, what your capabilities really are, but they don't really control what you do. Yeah. And so you, you have to, some, as a runner, as a football player, as a person, sometimes you have to have blinders and info, earmuffs on. You have to tune out all of that noise. Were you aware that he said that when he said it? I was aware that he did say it. I'm not sure exactly when I became aware. Yeah. It, it, it may have been in college, I guess. But uh, Have you ever met him? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. I think if he was in my presence, he might not even say anything to me. <laughs> yeah, he's a lugger. He's not a runner. Well, he was, he, he was right to some degree. <laughs> yeah. I'm not an outside runner, for sure. I did not have the blazing speed of someone else. I was a north-south runner. I was, that's the way I was trained. I was trained to go between the tackles and get north and south. You score touchdowns and you gain yards by going north and south, not yeah. east and west. No, you didn't run around the end. You ran over their numbers. <laughs> they're, they're right here. <laughs> number 32. I'm just going to run over number 32. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. Now, when you went to Florida, you're a young man and you're out on your own at that point. I'm a fan of... University of Oklahoma, I'm a fan of University of Texas, I'm a fan of Miami, I'm a fan of college football. Mm -hmm. I love the energy of the yes. fans. Yes. They just seem to get so excited, particularly Southeast Conference. But I see these athletes squander such great opportunities and such great talents by doing things off of the field right. that just ruin their careers and opportunities. Right. How did you stay away from all of that? You did it as a college player, and you've done it as a pro. Well, let me just say this. I've had my share of incidents. Um, 
one of the incidents that became a such a real moment for me, an eye-awakening moment, uh, was in college. Um, there was a, one of my high school teammates who happened to be my college teammate, Mark White, uh, was over at a fraternity house, and there was a fight that broke out. It, people jumped. Some of the fraternity brothers jumped on him. Um, we got wind of it. Freshman brothers got wind of it. Um, they got him out of the house. We got back to the dorm, and we sat down, and we started talking about what happened. And while we were talking about what happened, we was getting more angry about it. And then I think we made a decision to go back to the fraternity house. But here's the scenario. My arm was already in the sling because I had torn a pec muscle uh, probably a week and a half prior to that. So I can really, I was one-armed it, it, and in the sling. We go back to the fraternity house. I pull up in the front of the yard. I see the fight has already started. I get out the car, and it's a big brawl. Football players versus fraternity brothers. And guys are getting knocked out left and right. Football players are all, it's three guys really knocking guys out. Three guys, it's about 11 of us, but three guys was doing all the fighting yeah. and was doing all the hurting. They was putting so much punishment on those guys. And then we end up going back. They send some guys to the hospital. We back in the dorm. Then the next day we get a call to go over to the, to the head coach's office. Uh-oh. <laughs> we go over to the head coach's office, and and then they proceed to tell us what happened and all this stuff, and then they recognize all 11 of us. Uh, and then they suspended us from, for, from spring football for about two weeks. Not a big punishment, in my opinion. But I had to call my mom, had to call my dad and tell them what was going on, et cetera, et cetera. The next day, the headlines read, Smith and 11 others. Yeah. Smith and 11 others. I didn't throw out one punch. <laughs> yeah. But we all got suspended. And I was guilty because of association. I was also guilty because I did not neutralize the become a leader and neutralize the situation. I allow it. I allowed it to fester, and to grow. And being part of a team, sometimes you win as a team and you lose as a team. And so, that that's part of what I learned through that process. And so I also learned that my name is the only thing that I have left, and I should not lose it or squander it that way. And if this is an incident that's going to tarnish my opportunities to even continue to stay in college. Not only that, but even go to the pros. I need to make this correction. Was that a wake-up call? That was a wake-up call. At that point, you said, okay, I got to have more discipline than this? I got to have a lot more discipline than this uh, because I didn't like the way that they singled me out. Yeah. They singled me out, and I didn't even throw a punch. But yet, I was a part of the group. Yeah. And so that says that... Um, and you were the headline. Yeah, I was the headline. Yeah. And it says that um, uh, even though I was the headline, the, the article didn't talk about what happened and everything. It just talked about, it, it talked about what happened, but it just, it just singled me out. I was the headline on the West name. That's the best way to put it. But that's a good lesson, right? And you learned it early. It's a very valuable lesson. And I, I mean, it, my high school coach, Dwight Thomas, used to tell his guys, stay away from drugs. Uh, stay away from alcohol. Now, the drug part of I didn't have any problem. Yeah. Alcohol, yeah. I, when you yeah. go to college, you do get thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> and I was not a beer kind of guy. So, but uh, but I but but I I also learned a very valuable lesson here in Dallas too. Um, living over here off of MacArthur, uh, Jefferson Creek Apartments, 
um, Humperdinks right here in Las Colinas. Uh, one Thursday night, uh, my backup running back and I was hanging out over at uh, Humperdinks, drinking some. I was drinking absolute absolute cranberry. It's right across the street from CSI. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah. And so we came in, and as you come in, uh, there was a police officer sitting right there. I said hello to the police officer, always saying hello to the police officers out of respect. We sat down for a couple of hours. He and his his uh, girlfriend and his girlfriend's friend at the time. So we ended up going back to my apartment and leaving out. I said goodbye to the officer again, but I had had a number of drinks. So I get in the car, drive. I'm not inebriated. I'm driving. I know, and I'm, and I'm going the speed limit. But by the time I get ready to get on 114, I see this cop car get behind us. And we merge onto 114, heading towards MacArthur, going, going west. The cop car gets around, coming in front of us. I turn, put my blankets on the turn right to exit MacArthur. He does the same thing. I get to MacArthur, turn right to go up to Royal Lane. He does the same thing. I get in the left-hand lane to turn left on the Royal Lane. He does the same thing. I turn left to go in my apartment complex. He goes into my apartment complex. He opens up the gate. I follow him down. He goes by my parking garage. He goes on out. I pull into my parking garage, and my backup running back is right behind me. He's all like, he's like, man, you see that? Man, you got a police escort that out? I'm like, no, man. You don't realize what just happened. I said, man, if he wanted to, he could have pulled us over. And we and we've been drinking, and all kinds of things could have went wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Learned a very valuable lesson. Don't do that no more. Yeah, you dodged a bullet there, dodged right? A big bullet. Yeah. And so, but it, I think what happens to a lot of us though, we have bullets that we dodge, and we want to call it street cred, and we want to call it our persona, and everybody loves me, and we have the propensity to repeat that that same thing. Yeah. And eventually it catches up to you. Yeah. And so, and, and I hate for it to catch up to anyone. So when it comes down to marijuana or, or drug use or alcohol abuse and all those kind of things, we have to be very cognizant of, 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 of not only our surrounding, but how we handle certain things. And don't take this life for granted. I've always said, you look at pro athletes and particularly really successful pro athletes, and they're not all really successful and they don't all have a lot of money, but those are the ones that people see. So you got young men, a lot of testosterone, a lot of money, a lot of free time. What could go wrong here? A whole lot of things. What has to happen for that not to continue to be the case? You see so many players, and you knew me during the courtroom science days. I worked to defend a lot of the Cowboys in cases that were filed against them, oftentimes just because they were Cowboys. Right. I mean, they were falsely accused. I won't name them, but there were some that were accused of rape or sexual situations that were setups. They made themselves vulnerable but they didn't really do anything wrong, but they did not avoid the appearance of impropriety. Right. They got themselves in situations that they were smart, they wouldn't get in, and then there were some that they yeah. did do things they shouldn't do. What needs to happen to take these young men and prepare them better to handle the freedom and the money and the temptation? Well, I look at it like this. Most of us come from absolutely nothing. And we, we don't have the, and I, I mentioned it earlier, exposure. Right. We don't have the exposure to a life of grand or a life of abundance. And once you get to this life of abundance, and I think being a celebrity has this false sense of entitlement, um, whether it's 
the false sense of everyone loved me because of my performance on the football field, or this false of sense of I'm going to make this money for a long time, or this false of uh, I can get away with whatever I want to get away with. Whatever that is, uh, you can call it narcissist or you can call it all that. All of those things are falsities, falsities in my opinion. Um, and learning how to deal with those things. Uh, and, and there's been many cases that have come before us. <laughs> so we can see it across the board. The question is, are we really paying attention to it or are we saying that won't happen to me? Right. And, and, and I think we as athletes sometimes have the tendency to try to flip it in our head and think that it won't happen to us. And we're not humble in that regard to where we learn our life lessons through the eyes and the mistakes of others. I think that is it. You think that's not going to happen to me. That'll happen to them. Then you see these guys out in clubs at two in the morning and they got a gun in their pocket. What right. are you good? What are you got a gun in their pocket for? What are you going to do? Shoot somebody? <laughs> Shoot, shoot them, shoot somebody, or shoot themselves. One or two. There's yeah, something, something gonna happen. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, but but Doctor Phil, we're in a different time now. We're in different times. I mean, gun carrying people now have the rights to carry their guns wherever. I mean, I don't necessarily subscribe to that unless you find yourself in hostile environments and you're probably in an environment you don't need to be in in the first place. Yeah. Secondly, um, even athletes are targets. Targets for. Uh, uh, to be robbed, uh, followed, uh, whether it's male or female, right. <laughs> however you look at it. Um, everybody nowadays is trying to become this social media uh, king or queen, if you will, and doing whatever they can to do it. So uh, I think the celebrity aspect of, of how celebrities are revered uh, has trickled over into society, and now everybody's vying for their 15 minutes of fame, if you yeah. will. And so, and a lot of them are doing things. You got people dying now trying to get more likes on Instagram oh. and Facebook and everything else, doing stuff that that's so far out of the norm. Uh, put on a bulletproof vest and say, shoot me. Yeah. I mean, a guy got killed the other day, put on bulletproof vest, has friends shoot him so he could get more likes on the internet. I mean, yeah. really? Really. I mean, versus becoming who you are through hard work, yeah. through dedication, through commitment, through a vision of doing something that's going to be productive to life and productive to society uh, in, in some cases. So the Internet has broken down some of these things and saying, OK, it's OK to do this. You got YouTubers now and you have gamers now. I mean, people are getting paid millions of dollars to play video games. And so you got kids now saying, I don't even want to go to college. Yeah. I don't even have, and then you asked a question earlier about finances and all those things. Well, I tell people like this, my mom and dad had to manage thousands. They didn't have a clue how to manage a hundred thousand, right. let alone millions. Right. So how in the world are my mom and dad going to teach me how to manage hundreds of thousands or millions when they never experienced it themselves? Oh. So yeah. financial literacy, literacy is something that is forgotten about even at the elementary level. Yes, we teach them how to look at a penny, a nickel, a dime, and a quarter and a half a, half a dollar and a dollar and five. Yes, you teach them that. But teach them how to write a check. Teach them how to balance a checkbook. Teach yeah. them how to make investments. Teach them how to analyze uh, data now so they can make a much more informed decision. Those are the things that are going to be life skills, not recognizing a penny, a nickel, or a dime, or even one dollar. 
Yeah. That's part of it, but that's just the beginning part of it. And you have to find your own way because, like you say, my mother who passed away not too terribly long ago, she was like 78, 79. She was out in Beverly Hills and came to the show, and she was looking around, and she said, um, she said, Philip, I just got to know, how much do they pay you to do this? <laughs> and I told her some fraction of what the number was, and she just said, oh, my God, don't even tell me that. I just want to take to the bed. <laughs> I just want to take to the bed. If I'd have told her the truth, she might have died. I mean, it's just like, she said, oh, I just want to take to the bed. That just, that just scares me to death. That just scares me to death. She didn't even want to think about it. Don't even want to think about it. It was a positive thing, and yeah. she didn't even want to think about it. It's just overwhelming to right. them. So you've got to figure it out on your own. The statistic is that when athletes come out of the NBA or the NFL, and they're done. They're retired. They're cut. Their career is over. It's a very short period of time before a high percentage of them are divorced, bankrupt, or in serious financial distress. Right, right. That's not true with you. Why not? Well, put it this way. I've developed a plan of transitioning from the game. And I started that plan, and I was thinking about transitioning because— like Max Zimfinger said, I wasn't supposed to be that guy. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be that guy. So you figure I'm a lugger. I need to yeah, figure I mean, out. So I, I got to have a plan B. <laughs> I got to have a plan B because Charlie Edgar told me, Charlie Edgar, my Pop Warner coach, he, he, he taught me how to read blueprints and floor plans when I was 11 years old. Right. And so, and he also shared with me that same night that uh, I had talent and my talent can take me a long way. But my education would last me forever. And so he was right in that context. But what he could not foresee, nor could I even foresee, was how far it was going to take me and what levels of life that I would go through and the things that I would be exposed to that would pique so many other different interests right. and change the way I even would think about normal life. Normal life to me is nine to five, mom and dad, nine to five. Right. Normal, that's normal life. And either... A different kind of life is when you own something, so you're investing back in yourself, and you're now investing in people, and you're entrusting these people who help carry your business. Well, oftentimes, sometimes folks are not even qualified to do that. Right. And people are there showing up just to get a paycheck and, and allowing your business to suffer, but you have to keep your eyes on the prize. So yeah. you have to learn how to manage. When it comes down to an athlete, the one thing we are not trained to do is manage people. We come into our profession and we know it very, 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 very well. The same guy or woman comes into their profession and they're trained for 13, 14, 15 years. So they, they go through the ranks through business. They learn certain aspects of business. They master those skills and those trades. They become managers and right. assistant and vice P, VPs and everything else while we're mastering our craft. Well, when it's done, whether you it's done abruptly or if it's done because you retire, whether it's 15 years or one year, either way it goes, you go back to ground zero. Right. And you have to start all over again. And sometimes that transition is never easy. No transition is easy for anyone, to be honest with you. Sure. And as an athlete, the lights are gone. The noise is gone. The consistency of the paycheck is gone. 
your time management skills are done. You have to learn because you're so used to people putting things in order for you. Now you have to create this process for yourself. Yeah, it's a long way to fall, too. It's a long way to fall. And people, they, 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 they don't take that into consideration. And they always want to say, well, this, well, you, you should hire people. Well, hiring find someone is like, I got to pay somebody for that. I'm not making $10 million a year. Now I got to make up $10 million. Yeah. And the only way I'm going to do that is through business. I can invest. But being a passive investor is just one thing. But being an owner and a, a, of something is something entirely different. And so I think those are the skill sets that, that we miss oftentimes as athletes. So I tell all my kids right now, I don't care what you do. I don't care what you love. Learn business aspect of it. Because business is something that keeps the world going around every day. Either you're going to work for somebody for the rest of your life or eventually you're going to want to work, have people working for you. Yeah. So you may as well learn the business while you're at it. Get it while you can. When you're in the league like you were, at a level like that, the burn rate can be really high. Yes. I do want to comment here because you're good at holding out. <laughs> I'm not good at holding out. I, I mean, I, you, you were the longest holdout by a rookie in franchise history. That's fake news, Dr. Field, by the way. Yeah, that's fake news? Yeah, I'm going to tell you why. Because if y'all don't have a contract, I'm not holding out. I'm just negotiating. <laughs> you're, so you're not holding out. Yeah. Negotiations take a long time. You're just a slow negotiator. <laughs> the, the terms weren't quite right. Yeah. <laughs> you took a while to sign. Yeah. But yeah. you did start 15 games, rushed for almost 1,000 yards and 11 touchdowns in. And then you also came back and you did hold out later. I didn't hold out then. You didn't hold out then? I didn't have a contract. But you still didn't have a contract. My contract was... Was was up. Well, in 1993, you missed all of training camp in the first two regular season games. That is true. But then they came around and decided to give you a contract. Yes. Yeah. Okay. But but but, but again, let me let me explain to your viewers. <laughs> okay. All right. Here's the difference between holding out. <laughs> okay, we're not, going to school here. Here's the difference from my perspective between holding out and not having a contract. You take a current player that says, I got a four-year contract, right? Right. And in year three, I want to renegotiate. Forgetting what year four looks like, I want to renegotiate right now. Right. So I'm not coming to training camp at all until I give me a brand new contract. Right. So that's holding out. That's hold out. Okay. That's holding out. Mine didn't happen like that. I had a three-year contract that ended. So you played the whole three. I played a whole three. Okay. And then when my first contract ended, and this is leading to the second part of it. Okay. Um, when my first contract ended, I had 30 days to negotiate with 31 teams. 30 days. And so the only team that had the right of first refusal to my anything that was offered to me was the Dallas Cowboys. So after 30 days, all of my rights reverted back to the Dallas Cowboys, and I couldn't negotiate with nobody but the Dallas Cowboys. So I lost all kinds of leverage. So... In the middle of training camp, when you lose all kind of leverage and they bring in a guy from Alabama that's supposed to take your job, they think they can go out on the football field and win without you. And I'm like, no, I've done everything you asked me to do. I led the league in rushing as a rookie. No, yeah, as a, I, read, I was rookie of the year, led the league in rushing in year two, led the league in rushing in year three, and we won the Super Bowl in year three. There's never been an NFL rushing champion win a Super Bowl. Right. So other than that, other than that, I haven't done I got no credentials. I have no credentials. So how in the world can a guy not get a contract from other 30-some teams? Yeah. 
That's and so that's what happened. My contracts were, were I never had one in my rookie year, and then when I had one, it ended. And so they called me a holdout. No, I'm not a holdout. I'm just trying to get what's rightfully mine. So how did they come around? How well, did, they lost the first two games. Right. With this Alabama. <laughs> well, they lost the first two games with a rookie running back. And the thing is, here's where I think owners make mistakes at. They mess with the chemistry of football teams. Yeah. By messing with some of the key players. Yeah. And, and I've seen it happen with Seattle. I've seen it happen with, obviously, with Pittsburgh, with Le'Veon Bell and so forth. And, and I've seen it happen around with other players. They, they, they start messing with other players, key players on a team, and it filters, and it goes down into the team, and other players say, well, if they're doing this guy like that, then I don't have a chance. Right. I'm going to go ahead and get my free agency. I'm gone. Yeah, I'm going to get out of here because if they'll do him that way, I got no leverage. I have no leverage. So you're going to lose key players that way. And so – and – it upsets the apple cart, too, because players know that they need certain players or they gain more confidence when a certain player is on the football field with them. Now, when you did get your contract, was it a good one? It wasn't what I wanted, but it, it, it was one that I, I accepted. is one that I continued to honor out, and it didn't change the way I performed at all because that's the same year that I hurt my shoulder, too, by the way. Yeah. And that's the same year we went to, back to the Super Bowl two that year. Yeah. And nobody can say you didn't give it 100% because mm -hmm. let me tell you, that was the year you hurt your shoulder and Correct. did a monumental performance and a hell of a season as well. Yeah. But was it 80% of what you wanted, 60%, 50%? Uh, I was hoping to be in the 20s. Mm -hmm. And I, I was hoping to be a $28 million back with a five or six-year contract. Yeah. And the highest paid running back in the league at that time at about seven and a half million bucks. Yeah. A year. Yeah. <laughs> With a nice signing bonus, more like a $13.5 million signing bonus. Yeah. But instead, I didn't get that. Did you get close? No. When it came time to renegotiate, did you make them catch up? You know what? Here's the beautiful thing. When it came down, when I got my second contract, Jerry ripped it up and gave me a long-term extension. Gave me an eight-year deal uh, for $42.5 million. Yeah. And and gave him a pretty nice signing bonus then. Yeah. And that was the last contract I had. I had three contracts with the Cowboys. When he did that, he did that before your second contract was up. Yes. Did you look at that as a real act of good faith? I thought so. I thought it was a very good act of good faith. I felt like I was I was going to be a Dallas Cowboy for the rest of my life, which which is what I wanted in the first place. Yeah. And um and so, yes. Were you shocked when Parcells came in and no. No, I was very excited when Parcel came in. Uh, I think at the time, those two or three years were lean, lean years, and I thought we needed someone like a Bill Parcells to come in right. and shake up the whole entire organization and shake up the team and get us back on track. But he did release you. Yes, he did. Were you surprised? Yes, I was a little surprised. Uh, um, I thought that um, – I thought that I still had life left to play in the game. I thought I could have helped with the transition uh, from um, um, myself to another running back. Um, but uh, I understood that with the new coach, new changes, no better time now than to release me than then. So you then go to the Arizona Cardinals and you signed a two-year deal? Yes, sir. Was that a good deal? Yeah, it was yeah. a good deal. It was a good deal for me. Yeah. Um, I would have stayed here with the Cowboys if I could have got 
the same deal. Yeah. Uh, but um, going to Arizona was was a it, it was a great thing for me because I, going there, I was able to to recognize that my time has come and gone. And uh, it gave me the ability to have closure and say, it's time for me to put the game down. Really? Yes. What about that experience turned that light bulb on? Coming back here to Dallas to play the Cowboys um, in Texas Stadium, riding in on a visitor's bus, getting dressed in the visitor's locker room, broke my heart to pieces. Um, I felt out of place. I felt like I did not belong in that locker room. I felt like I needed to be on the other side. I cried for 45 minutes, just slobbing, just crying, boom, couldn't stop. The tears just kept flowing. It was one of the the most heart-wrenching moments for me. And go out on the football field, finally get myself together, go out on the football field, get hurt on the game, in the game, and get back into the locker room, get dressed, around my girls and um, go back to Arizona. And, and, and I realized how much my love for the Dallas Cowboys and my ability to play at the level that I wanted to play at was so intertwined and inseparable. Yeah. And, and that's when I knew it was time for me to leave the game. But I also knew that I had to honor out my contract to the Arizona Cardinals. So, I made up my mind that I'm going to finish this contract out. I'm going to work as hard as I can to get back on the football field. I'm going to help the Cardinals as much as I can for the next for the following year. And after that, I told my wife, we're going home. <laughs> and you did. You had 937 rushing yards yeah. and nine touchdowns. Yeah. So you did help them a bunch. <laughs> I did the best I could right? at the age of 34. Yeah. And so um, I still – the day – the day before I was going to make my announcement, I'll never forget it. I was in Jacksonville playing golf at, at, at Sawgrass with my uh, college roommate, Terrence Barber. Uh, we like on the 13th hole. I get a call from my agent, Eugene Parker. He said, he said, he said, are you, you sure you ready to retire? I'm like, yeah, why? He said, I, I got an offer. I said, you got an offer? I'm like, he's like, yeah, I got an offer for you to come to go to go to Buffalo and they want you to work with Willis McGahee uh-huh. and and help teach him and, and help him. And I was like, Buffalo? I'm like, Gene, I am done, man. I don't want to play football ever again. I, I appreciate the offer, but I'm taking my family home. I'm not gonna hop around league after league or city after city, trying to hold on to something that's ready, it's, it's already gone. When you came from Arizona to the Cowboys for that first time, and you were in that locker room, heartbroken, what was the reaction of your Arizona teammates? They didn't know what to do. They would, my Damon Anderson, Marcel Ship, James Hodgins, uh, Josh Scobie, they all was like, dude, they couldn't say nothing. Because all I could say, I, I mean, they're asking me what's, what's going on. I'm like, I'm not supposed to be in here. This is not my locker room. And they were all in the they, they just couldn't say nothing. And then I finally got myself together, got my clothes on, went out on the field, did the best I could, boom. And, and I think they had a sense. And, and that is, I think Peyton Manning may have gone through that. 
I think some other players that have gone back to their former teams that that they've had long careers at. Yeah. I think Brian Dawkins went through that as well. It is it is an experience unlike any other, especially when you when you love that team as much as we did. Because I love the Cowboys ever since I was a kid anyway. So yeah. playing for the Cowboys is like playing for my favorite football team ever. And and having the chance to win three Super Bowls with the teammates that I was able to win those three Super Bowls with. What a dream, right? Come on. I mean, I couldn't ask for anything more. Yeah. But you did have one more contract, right? Well, You, you signed a, a one-day contract. Yeah, I did sign a one-day contract. For $1. $1. That's all Jerry was going to give me, $1. <laughs> and he still didn't give me the dollar. <laughs> <laughs> he still owes you a buck? He still owes me a buck. <laughs> all right, Jerry, pony up. So you signed a one-day contract yeah. with the Cowboys and retired and a retired. Dallas Cowboy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. How did that feel? Did you know, it, did, it, did it put it back right that you, you retired what? a Cowboy? I was going to do that anyway. There was no way I was going to turn 13 years of what I've done with the Dallas Cowboys to trade after two years with the Arizona Cardinals. Uh, that was going to be the plan anyway. Uh, and so, rightfully so, I had to come back home. And and that whole thing, that whole experience of retiring as a Dallas Cowboy was a tremendous experience. Yeah. It was beautiful. Do you still consider yourself a Dallas Cowboy? Oh, all day. You're a Cowboy through and through, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, everybody thinks of you that way. Well, I think of myself that way, too. What's your relationship with Jerry Jones? I think we have a very good relationship. Very, very... Uh, Respectful. Um, I love Mr. Jones. Mr. Jones has taught me a whole lot. Um, I'll never forget early in my career, uh, my rookie year, asking Mr. Jones, could I come sit in his office during lunch hours to listen at him uh, negotiate certain things and talk, conduct business. And uh, he allowed me He allowed me to do that for a number. As a rookie? As a rookie. Yeah. Now, why did you do that as a rookie? I was just curious. Curious about... Mr. Jones and what he did for a living outside of owning the Dallas Cowboys. See, I've always been a guy that's curious to see how others make their living, how they pr produce. What put him in a position to where he was able to buy the Cowboys for $140 million? Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and if he's paying me this type of salary and all my teammates, how much is he really making? Yeah. So you start asking, and where is he getting it? And where is he getting it? <laughs> yeah. And so come to what I found out was that not only was he in the oil and gas business, he's actually in the real estate business. Yeah. He really is in the real estate business. Oil and gas is no more than a real estate lease. And so when you look look at it, and he's just extracting minerals from the land in which he's which he has access to. When you look at the stadium, the stadium is a real estate play. Absolutely, it's a and real so estate when play. And so when you look at what he's doing up at the Star, it's a real estate play. When you look at what he did with, with, with Starwood, uh, the community Starwood, it's a real estate play. And so Mr. Jones is the king of leverage. He does it like no other. He's a great promoter, a great marketer, uh, along with his whole entire family. Uh, they all are tremendous, hardworking people. Um, and... And they loved them some Dallas Cowboys, rightfully so. When you spend $140 million, yeah, you better love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just don't invest that kind of money and not love what you do. I took a really hard look at buying the Rams when they were in St. Louis. And the model that you look at is the Jerry Jones model, which is 
you got to own the stadium. Yep. You got to own the concessions. You got to own the parking because you're not going to make money off the football operations. Mm-hmm. Not at all. You're going to make money off of everything, everything around else. it. All the asset value. And so when he bought the Cowboys at $140 million and 13 years later, uh, you know, I retire, Michael retired, Troy retired, and and the value of the Cowboys, he built his $1.5, $1.3 billion stadium, and then, boom, the value goes up to $2.5 billion, and you're like, how much equity did we leave on the table? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. Got, we got intrinsic value over there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you stay in touch with Troy and Michael? You know, Michael and and I we go to go to go to, goes to the pilot's house. So I see Michael yeah. during the off season uh, quite a bit at church. Uh, Troy and Daryl Johnson and I, so we run in the same circles. We're all sim- at similar events together, but we don't talk on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. The beautiful thing about sport, as you would know, when you go back to your high school buddies, is as if y'all never left. Yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about sports because we have so much in common and we've done so much together uh, that it's hard to separate us. And that kinsmanship remains. Yeah, it is that way. With my high school teammates, and I played ball at the University of Tulsa. And when you're with those guys and you've been in the trenches with them, it's kind of foxhole buddies, yes. you know? You've you yes. just been in the wars together, so you've got a bond that you just don't have with anybody else. True enough. It's not about old glory days or anything. It's just, it's unspoken. You it just kind of hang. It is unspoken bond. And, and, you know, most people don't realize or recognize what that's like because I don't, yeah. I'm not sure if most people have ever been in situations like building something together and sweating yeah. and tears and, and fighting together and winning and losing together, what that really means. Yeah. So when I hear people say, ride or die, that's truly ride or yeah, die. that's ride or die right there. That's ride or die for real. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and you will find that same old ride or die at, attitude in the military. Yeah. Because of men and women are fighting equally yoked and they saving each other's life. They, they got each other's back. If yeah. not, they run the risk of Everybody losing their lives. When you were playing football, did you ever think you would be dancing in front of millions of people? Never. <laughs> never. <laughs> never. That was never. You know, I, I've been a guy that have had dreams and goals and everything else. and But that right there was never one of them. I never yeah. dreamt. In the world that I would be on a tel- in the world that I would be on a television show wearing a tutu and some three inch heels and and doing these type of uh, ballroom dances and so but you know well, hell you won you didn't just do it you won hey you know football taught me a lot and yeah. I take these same I'm serious I mean you write football is life lessons yeah and so you take these same old skills the work ethic the the, the structure. And you break down a, a minute and 20 second routine like you would break down a practice set schedule. And you learn those things and you put it all together, then you just free to do it. Once I learned how, once I learned my playbook my rookie year, football became easier. And you hear it when you start, when you hear the rookies, the rookie quarterbacks, and, and you hear the announcers talk about rookie quarterbacks. The game hasn't slowed down enough for him yet. The game is still too fast. In other words, he may get to his first and second read, but he may never get to his third or fourth read until his third or fourth year in the league. Yeah. And once he gets to his fourth read, now he's manipulating the whole entire field. Yeah. The game has slowed down so much. Now he's dictating to the defense. Yeah. To me, 
that's what learning that minute and 30, 20 second routine was like. Once I learned it, then I was able to pick out the parts in there where I can allow my personality to come out and have yeah. fun in the middle of the dance and enjoy it. Yeah, well, here's the question. I want to know how you got this by Pat. Hey, that was never easy. Because let me tell you, Pat and Robin talked about this. They've asked me to do that several times, and Robin always answered for me. <laughs> she said, there ain't no way those girls are wrapping those legs around him and Pat was coming on the show, and, you know, she and Robin had been friends. Well, before y'all got married, right, actually. Right. And I heard Pat and, and Robin talking about it, and I'm not sure you did get that past Pat. I'm not sure she's over that yet. No, well, <laughs> she might not be over it. I, I, I mean, I hope she, I hope that she is, but, you know, I, I, I had to talk to her first. I did not make decis the, the decision in a vacuum. I did call her to let her know that I had an offer, and we went through this whole entire process. And man, it was a process. And so she thought that uh, she thought I was missing the limelight because I had retired from football and thought yeah. I wanted to get back into to the limelight. But it wasn't even about that. It was about extending the brand for me yeah. and and having a conversational piece for business yeah. purposes and. And, and I felt like I could dance better than Master P, who set the bar so low. I mean, I, I had nothing but upside. Yeah. Until I got there and I saw Mario Lopez and Joey Lawrence and Monique Coleman and all these other great dancers. I'm like, man, what did I get myself into? And I want to say, so there's no misunderstanding. It's not that Pat was suspect that you were going to do something you shouldn't do. It was just, it's just painful to watch. Right. Uh, some woman draping herself all over your husband. Especially, Not, when, especially when she had any suspicion. Especially of you. when you're doing the rumba. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you're doing the rumba and, and all yeah. that stuff. But, yeah. you know, and, I, and they're not exactly wearing parkas. Yeah. 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 And, but the, here's the thing with Cheryl and I. Cheryl and I, when we first met, um, we, we set down the foundational, the rules. I'm not going to disrespect you. You don't disrespect me. Uh, I'm gonna work hard. I'm gonna show up on time. I'm gonna give you my all. And after that, I went home. My wife said, "Here are my rules: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner with Cheryl, and come straight yeah. home after practice." I said, "No problem, no problem." Yeah, that's no right. Problem. And I bet you stayed with it. What too. I try to tell my wife is this: I mean, when you were someone like that, eight hours a day, you want to get away. Yeah. I need Southwest. I yeah. need to get away. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, plus she's a hard driver, right? She's just like a Jimmy Johnson, and you're there yeah. for a purpose. Uh, yeah. and, and and you're working, and she was – some days she would come in in great moods, and some days she would come in very moody. So it's like, okay, there was times when she would get all cranky and everything, and I wouldn't say nothing to her. We, we wouldn't even talk. Yeah. we just go yeah. through the day. All right, thank you. Yeah. You yeah. tell me what to do. Yeah, all right. Okay. And that's the way it was. Now let me out of here. Yeah, now I can't <laughs> wait to get out that door. <laughs> yeah. But but she was a beautiful partner to work with, and uh, I was blessed to have her, though. It is, like you said, it's a good conversation piece for the brand, right? It, it truly is a great conversation piece for the brand. Most of my following at that time were, were, were skewed towards male side. And then when I did Dance with the Stars, it opened up a whole nother area of uh, a female uh, followers and people, including some males. Yeah. Uh, so there were women that didn't even know what I did, but they know me strictly from Dancing with the Stars only. There are grandparents, yeah, <laughs> grandmamas <laughs> that love me on Dancing with yeah. the Stars. <laughs> yeah, I like the way he moves. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so people know what you're doing now. We're talking about this brand. You were talking about Coach Eggers, who showed you how to read 
blueprints and all of that. And this was back when you were how old? 11 years old. 11 years old. So fast forward now, being through Pop Warner, then high school, then college, then the most illustrious pro football career in the history of pro football. And now you're reading blueprints <laughs> and all because you are in the real estate business in a big, big way. Yes, I have delved deep into the real estate business and I've been in it um, since 2005. I started out with the Starback company. Right. So Roger Starback was, was a great uh, mentor of Magic Johnson as well. Um, but the Roger Starback ushered me into the real estate business in 2005. Uh, and I have my own development firm, East Smith Legacy Holdings is the holding company. Then we have East Smith Properties, which is the development firm. And then we also have what I would call my replacement of the Starback company, which is East Smith Advisors. Uh, we did a, we commenced and, uh, a joint venture agreement with a company called Newmark Knight and Frank, uh, that has 400 offices around the globe. Uh, about access to about 14,000 brokers. And so we have a broker's tenor rep services business and the platform is pretty large. So from a corporate standpoint, we can do corporate headquarters just like anyone else. We're right in that same vein of uh, some of the bigger players that you see out there. Yeah. And then I have EJ Smith Construction. Uh, and this is probably where Charlie Egger came into play. Um, uh, but having the vision and the fortitude to see that America's infrastructure was the can about 10 to 12 years ago, because there was some talk about that when President Obama was running for office the first time. Uh, and so in that process with him and George Bush uh, having these discussions about America's infrastructure, I was starting to see bridges fall down up in Minnesota and other places. Um, I saw that there was a tremendous opportunity to get out in front of it. And so we started a construction company in 2000 fall of 2011. Uh, Eugene Walker is my, uh, uh, is, is my business partner. Uh, he's the president and CEO. He runs everything day to day. He has uh, a world of experience in that area and uh, I rely on him. He's the man, I'm his partner. Um, he, he does it all. And then we have East Smith Horizons where we invest in America's infrastructure as well. So mm -hmm. uh, our platform is pretty, pretty much from soup to nuts. I like to say, say this to people, uh, we built a platform that touches everything that you want to do from a business office, development, construction, and even investing uh, from an infrastructure standpoint. So either if you don't want to do business with Emmett Smith, it's just because you just don't want to do business with Emmett Smith. And when you're talking about doing these projects, you're talking about a quarter million square feet projects for corporate headquarters or retail space yes. or whatever. We're talking, talking about, about big, we talk, we talk about big, big projects. Yeah. And, and that requires um, some significant, significant dollars um, and um, nothing is small. I mean, you can go to a single tenant uh, uh, pad site. You could do a CVS or a Walgreens or uh, you can work with a company like Smoothie King and put them into a 1,200 square foot place or a 2,500 square foot pad as well. So you can do from soup to nuts. You, you can go multi-tenant or you can go single tenant. You do this all over the country, right? Yeah, we were working on a project uh, up in um, right up north of Philadelphia called, right off of uh, the Schuylkill River, uh, right outside of a town called Manioc. There was a 31 acre parcel there, 200 uh, year old paper plant, closed that down. 
and we're in the process of acquiring that. that oh, that, really? Yeah, we're gonna redevelop that whole thing and turn it into a mixed-use project. Oh. Um, we have river on one side, we have SEPTA on the other side. Um, there's a bus loop on the property right now. We want to make it more of a um, a people mover friendly, eco uh, centric uh, development with some housing, some office, some retail, a combination of everything. So, how much do you enjoy this? I love it. Yeah. I love it. What appeals to you about it? What gets your juices flowing about this? The opportunity to create something and the opportunity to to learn something every day. In the development business, you're going to learn a whole lot uh, from financing all the way down to the construction aspect of it. Uh, but then not to mention, it's, it's the relationship building. That's, that's kind of cool. When I talked about Dance with the Stars as being a conversational piece, it's an icebreaker. You walk into a room and walk into a meeting and uh, without fail, Someone around the room would say, yes. My wife said, yeah, you got a meeting with the guy from Dance with the Stars? Yes. Yeah. So it's a conversational piece. Of course. And so it works out, works out well. But the one thing I have learned, like anything else in sports, um, you're in the service business. Yeah. You are in the service business. We're there to service every client that we work with. We want, we're looking to earn the right to do business with people and retain them as clients and customers. And so... Uh, it's just like football. When I walked on the football field, I wanted people to get their dollar value worth when they came to see us play. You bet. I want people to know you're also very generous on the charitable side of things. You're very active in the philanthropic side of things yes. and have a really big impact here in Dallas. Yes. In fact, it was year before last. I was very honored for you to present the Roger Staubach Award to me. Robin and I were here. Yep. and Thank you for coming. Well, I was very honored to be chosen to receive that. And the turnout for that, the whole focus, everything that you're doing is just having a huge impact on the community. You've got to feel good about that. Well, I feel good about having corporate America support us. Right. Um it's kind of hard to be philanthropic without having the proper support. But at the end of the day, you can give time. Right. You can give also resources. And the thing that I honestly believe, and my wife believes is the same thing, um, kids are looking for folks to not necessarily give them a handout, but a hand up. And we truly believe to whom much is given, much is required. And exposure is the key to a lot of, to unlocking one's mental potential. What Charlie Edgar did for me in his house, when he walked me into his office and showed me how to read blueprints, set my mindset on a totally different trajectory. Not only did he own his own construction company, but he also was my football coach, which says you can do two things. You can play the game of football and you can play it for so long, and then you can transition and go and do something else and, mm -hmm. and, and be in control of your own destiny. And, and having that kind of experience and, and, and having the experience of being around a guy like Jerry Jones, a guy like yourself, a guy like a Mark Cuban, a guy like a Magic Johnson, a guy like a, a, um, Bob Johnson and many others, so, and Michael Jordan, who are entrepreneurs in their own right, having that, those folks around to have a conversation with, to learn what they're doing, um, that's exposure. It's exposure for me still. And so trying to give these kids an understanding of what life could be like outside of their four-corner block. Right. And how, so they can see how they fit in the world and, and say, I do add value. I can add value. I can have a life 
beyond what my what I see right now. I don't have to live within the means of the eyes sight of my mom and dad. My job now is to take it further. And that's the responsibility of children, in my opinion, is yeah. to go beyond what your mom and dad was able to do. Not necessarily sit back there and become the trust fund baby. Yeah, and you want that for your children. I we want always it. want our children to do better than we do. Do better. Just keep going. Just and going keep and going. going. Would you aspire to own an NFL team someday? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Uh, without a doubt. Would love to. Would love to own the cow- Cowboys, but I don't think they're going to sell a piece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that would bring diversity to ownership in the NFL. That's Without something that's needed, right? It's something that's definitely needed. Um, um, I honestly believe diversity is something that's that should be required because you have a melting pot. But I, when I say required, I don't mean that you must do this. But at the end of the day, you have to have diverse thinking at the table in order to make something better. You've been with the Dallas Cowboys, and Jerry Jones is a unique owner. Very and he's probably not going to sell the Dallas Cowboys. And so you're probably not going to be able to buy that from him. But what kind of owner would you be? You know, that's a very good question. I think that I would be a fair owner. I think I would be an owner that's that that's tried to inspire his players to think beyond the game itself. Um, but an owner that's that's compassionate because being a player helps me yeah. help me relate to my players. Yeah. It helped me understand what they're dealing with and what they're going through. Um, and I think if I can earn the respect of my, my, my players as an owner and take care of them as an owner, uh, they will take care of us too as well. Yeah. Um, but I think kid, players need to – and I think kid, these players here are different players. They're learning a lot of different things, and they're growing and expanding mentally. You bet. And so they will be better than probably my generation was because of what they've been exposed to and what they've been what they have access to. And then I see a lot more players parlaying things together now than they ever did in my past. Right. Is Jerry a good owner? I think Jerry is a great owner. Is he too involved? Is that an impediment or is it a good thing as involved as he is? I think he is a very passionate owner for his team. I don't think he is as involved as most people want to give him credit for. Mm -hmm. The Cowboys is going to be Jerry Jones long after Jerry Jones is gone. Right. He has established the persona that he is the Cowboys, and Mm -hmm. everything goes through him. That's the persona. I don't believe that's the truth. I think Stephen Jones and others around him have, have helped tremendously in those decisions. Yeah. Now – as long as the man is around, you're going to get his opinion. Yeah. But sometimes you got to talk Jerry off a ledge. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, and there's only a few that I think that can do that. Right. I think it's his wife, Miss Jean. I think it's Charlotte. And I think it's his family. Yeah. I think he listens to, to the advice of those, those individuals. And because Jerry can get very emotional about a decision and allow his emotions to, to drive the, the decision. And sometimes I think cooler hairs do prevail, prevail in, that, in, that, in that office. You said to me one time that Ezekiel Elliott might be the real deal. I, th- I still think he is. You think that he could be the guy? I think he could be the guy. He could be the guy. And I think what I'm proud of is last year, as tough of a year as it was for him, uh, this year has been pretty quiet. And, and I think he's pretty focused uh, for various reasons, uh, mainly because I think 
again, the experiences of life help us turn a corner. And, um, and I think he has gone through enough right now to where uh, it looked like he's starting to turn a corner. Only time would tell. Uh, but uh, so far, so good. Does he have the work ethic? I ask it in this context. I remember one time you and I were partners in a golf tournament here mm -hmm. at Las Colinas. You were talking about some training you were doing on the twitch responses. The fast and the, twitch and stuff. Yeah, the yeah. fast twitches and all in addition to all the other training that Correct. you were doing. And Correct. we were talking about the training regimens and stuff that you were doing. And it wasn't rising to the level of training that I was doing, as you could see in my golf game that day. This was a science for you. And I mean, you really, really worked at it. Has he got that work ethic? I really don't know because I'm not that, my ears are not that close to the ground inside of Dallas Cowboys organization to where um, I would talk to the the uh, uh, strength and conditioning coach, but knowing the strength and conditioning coach, he's not going to allow them to cut any corners. Yeah, and so that's the way he has been with us in the past, and he has more range than most players do. So you have to respect his knowledge in that weight room, and so I would believe that Zeke, in order for Zeke to be the performer that he's he is right now, is he has to work hard. Uh, mm -hmm. You just don't go on that football field and and do what he's able to do without working hard. If you had 90 days to just really bust it and train and work, could you get back on the field and play three or four games? Hell no. <laughs> not a chance? Not a chance. Not even three or four games? Not even three or four games. I'm not saying a whole season. I, I don't care what you say. <laughs> <laughs> There's no, because it's going to take more than 90 days. It's going to yeah. take more than 90 days, and I'm about to turn 50 next year, and my body just cannot take the punishment no more. Yeah. I can't do it. You're the oldest running back to throw a touchdown pass. Well, now that don't say much. No, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that doesn't say much at all. So there's no way you could get yourself back into playing three or four games. Dr. Phil, <laughs> there's no way. There's no way. When I said, when I went to Arizona and I cried in that locker room and, and something broke, yeah. the bowel broke and it was over. It was over. I don't want to run no more. Yeah. I don't want to lift another weight. I, period. Yeah. So we're not going to one day wake up and see that it's the second coming of Emmitt Smith. The Cowboys have turned back the clock, and they're going to get their fourth Super Bowl. It's going to be Emmitt Smith in a hologram. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be me. It may be my son, EJ, but it won't be me. <laughs> yeah. I tell you what, we'll never, ever in my lifetime experience the thrills that we got when you were on that football field and I don't know if you remember it, but you do remember when your wrist was messed up and you had it in a cast. And yeah. our son Jordan had won a, a drawing at Oshman's store here where he got to be the kid that ran out on the field and picked up the tee after they kicked off. Right, right, right. For the whole game. And that was the game that you were out because you had your hand in a cast. You were so kind to spend so much time with him on the sideline. He didn't know when to run out and stuff. And you tell him, all right, go <laughs> and run back out there. You were really, really kind to him. I watched that whole thing and I knew right then you had the heart of a father and the kindness of a dad because you were really kind to my son when you didn't even know who he was. Well, thank you. So that was great. We'll never forget that. And you won his mother's heart that day. I'll wow. tell you for sure. Wow. 
So, Emmett, thanks for talking to me. Thank you. All right, man. Yes, sir. Thanks so much. You're welcome. If you would like to watch the video of this entire interview, please go to Dr. Phil's YouTube channel and subscribe. It's free, and you will find this interview and a whole lot more.